the first days are the hardest days. So we need all the support we can get to undertake the practice, and especially in an intensive retreat like this. <coughs> Earlier this morning, I offered the refuges and precepts, and it's a traditional practice on a retreat like this. It's a traditional practice for uh, people of the Buddhist faith or people who practice these teachings worldwide. But initially, it might appear to be just uh, some mumbo-jumbo in a foreign language that's kind of a, a ritual. And it's just kind of a uh, nothing of value. So tonight I want to speak about the refuges and the taking of the refuges in a way that I hope will offer some understanding so that when we chant the refuges in the morning, it can become a meaningful practice for you rather than a mumbo-jumbo ritual, which really has no value at all. I first understood the emotional uh, support of taking the refuges when I went to Burma. And after I was introduced to Dharma practice, I then did retreats like this in the West for eight or nine years. And then I decided for a variety of reasons, but mostly in order to practice intensively for more of the time, I went to Asia. And I flew from New York to Bangkok, spent a couple of days in Bangkok, and went on to Rangoon, took a day of touristing in Rangoon, and went to the meditation center. And this was the first time I'd been out of the country. In fact, I was born and raised in New England and hadn't gone much further than that. And Rangoon was a foreign place. <laughs> It was different. I mean, not just the climate and the culture and the language and the food and the weather, but on top of all that, I went to the monastery. And that is another world unto itself. And in the monastery, or in the meditation center where I was at, people are doing this kind of practice for 20 hours a day, day in, day out, year after year, and had been doing so for 50 years at this place. Well, I didn't know anyone, except that I had practiced with the teacher that I was going to see. I'd practiced with him in the States for three months, a year and a half before. But at this meditation center where I was staying, breakfast was, breakfast was served at 5.30 in the morning. And there was a sitting before that. And uh, the foreigners that were there would do the sitting. And then when it was about breakfast time, we would get up and we would um, kind of hang around the cottage of our teacher waiting for the breakfast gong to call us 
uh, and everyone else in the meditation center to breakfast. And when the gong came, or at the end of the sitting, before the gong came, there was a meditation hall for women at the top of the hill near the dining room. And the women at the end of their sitting before breakfast would always chant the refuges, the precepts, a little bit of loving kindness, metta, and some other uh, kind of a traditional thing that they do. And so I'd be standing in the shadow or near Saida's cottage, and the women would start their chant. Now, Burmese women are very devout, and they're very sincere, and they're very loud when they chant. And so in this hall, there was the, this hall could hold up to 15 or 1,800 people. And at times, there'd be four, 500, 600, maybe 1,000 women, and they would start chanting. And it was pretty impressive. And they'd be a few bars into their chant, and there's another meditation hall halfway down the hill, uh, you know, 50 yards away. And it's a two-story meditation hall for women, 500 on each floor. And so one floor would start a few seconds after the first one, and they'd start same chant, and then a few seconds later, the other floor would start. And then there was a men's and monks meditation hall across the road from that, also halfway down the hill, and that could hold up to 1,200. And so there'd be another six or 800, or sometimes 1,200 men or monks start chanting. And then down below, where we as foreigners were standing and waiting, there was another meditation hall for monks uh, only. And, you know, in the still of the morning, you wake up, you have a sitting, and then you've got three or 4,000 people with the, just the most sincere, devout heart chanting and expressing their appreciation, their faith, their gratitude for the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. It was hair-raising. It was hair-raising in a way that was just so powerful in touching some place in myself that had never been touched like that. And it helped me to realize how universal these teachings are. They're not particularly, uh, uh, or they're not particular or peculiar to Burmese, or Americans, or even people living in the 20th, at that time, 20th and now 21st century. Men and women around the world have been taking the refuges and precepts daily. Hundreds, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people daily for 2,500 years. And when I heard these women and men and Sometimes the foreigners would join in. It was as if we were joining in acknowledging our own faith, our own confidence, our own appreciation, gratitude for them. It was 
an experience that just um, helped me through the difficult transition to a foreign culture, a foreign language, a foreign practice, in a foreign, it just, it melted the boundaries between myself and all the others, even though I didn't speak their language and didn't understand their culture. But there was something that we had in common, and that was this uh, seeking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. How can we take the refuges each morning as a support for and an understanding for our practice? Contrary to what it sounds like, seeking refuge, taking refuge is not an act of incapability. Because I can't do it, I'll take refuge somewhere else. Because I don't have self-confidence, I'll take refuge somewhere else. On the contrary, to be willing to put yourself in a relationship to the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, the Sangha, those who practice, and a, a, a relationship of faith and of reliance and of uh, trust is actually an empowering and compassionate act for ourselves. For the most part, our careers, our relationship, and our income is what we take refuge in. For the ordinary demands and responsibilities of life. But there are conditions that we all live with, that we all face. The insecurity, the vulnerability, our fears, just the unpredictability of life that are not ameliorated by our income and our parents and our children and our careers. And when we awaken, as we begin to awaken to this level of insecurity and this level of unknowing and this level of vulnerability in our life, it is a compassionate act to seek a source of support and understanding and a refuge in helping to come to terms with these conditions. So we take refuge in the Buddha first. The Buddha is literally the one who is awake. Awake mentally, awake physically, awake spiritually, and we know the story, to some degree, of the Prince Siddhartha who left home and undertook spiritual practice 
and became the Buddha. And even just knowing a little bit about what that path of practice and the realization involved, we would have to acknowledge that that was a pretty extraordinary task and a pretty extraordinary person to be able to do that. It's also important to remember that the Buddha, the historical Buddha of 2,500 years ago, was a human being just like you and I, born into a human life with human parents and all of the challenges of living a human life. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we may initially take refuge in this historical being with the understanding that, well, if he did it, I can. Or with some reliance on, well, since he did it, I'll take advantage of what he has to offer. Because as we hear the teachings of the Buddha, they point to the realization of the way things are. And with this understanding is freedom from suffering. Well, when I first did my first retreat, I was in my early 20s and I was full of it and pretty confident, probably arrogant still. <laughs> and I didn't really know that I was suffering. Life was just life. But it doesn't take too long when you start paying close attention to realize that, you know, there's, there's some suffering in life. Whether you see it in the lives of others around you or you really begin to feel it and see it in your own life. What would it possibly mean to be free of suffering? It's hard to imagine how subtle the suffering is that the realization of the Buddhas uh, addressed. When we take the historical Buddha as a refuge, it brings into uh, sharp relief our own personal limitations, challenges, fears, sorrows, ambitions. And so to, to personally aspire to realize what the Buddha realized takes some humility to just recognize that we're really not there yet. Nevertheless, we have this innate uh, potential as a human being with a mind to wake up like the Buddha. If we understand, or when we understand that the bodhisattva undertook the practice, the training that he did 
in order to free his mind from limitation and suffering, then we begin to get an understanding for ourselves of how our practice can be an aspiration for us too, or what our aspiration in practice can head towards. After the Buddha's awakening, he pondered and wondered what to do, thinking that maybe he ought to just wander off into the mountain somewhere and enjoy the, the uh, bliss of liberation. But he was prevailed upon by those who wanted to hear, really, what he had understood. And so he, out of compassion for the suffering that he saw, that he had seen in his own mind, and the suffering that he saw in others around him, he then undertook to try to teach or to share with others what it is that he had learned, understanding that it was going to be a big bother to him to do that. Because he said, it's just going to be vexatious. It's going to be a challenge to try to point others or steer others or guide others to these teachings, to this realization, to this understanding. And yet he willingly took on that challenge and taught for 45 years putting himself in relationship with the men and women, the monks and nuns, the royalty, the beggars, the prostitutes, the, the merchants of his time who were interested in what he had realized. And there, when you read the discourses of those who came to the Buddha and the teachings that he gave them, he met the whole range, just as we might if we were to kind of uh, open our door to anyone who wanted to question us. The whole range of both skillful and unskillful, committed and serious and charlatans and, and angry types and fearful types. And he willingly put himself there to try to guide that mind towards the understanding that would free it from suffering. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in this possibility for ourselves to wake up, to really see things the way they are, and through that understanding to stop suffering. But we also take refuge in the wisdom of compassion, the wisdom of acting in the world to relieve the suffering of others. Think about it. What are we doing here? If all we're doing is trying to get by with as much pleasure as we can get, 
we miss a tremendous opportunity for enjoying a tremendous sense of well-being and purpose in our life. And when we turn our actions and our speech and our mind towards seeking how we can help others effectively, it is rewarding beyond belief. This is what the Buddha did. He not only realized the way things are, saw the suffering in the world, but he walked his talk for 45 years. And we all know how difficult it is to live with integrity, to live our life expressing the beliefs that we aspire to. We may know what's right, but it's hard to do. It's hard to walk our talk. And yet, when we take refuge in the Buddha, we aspire to that. We aspire to be able to wake up, act compassionately, and walk our talk. And so when we take refuge in the morning, you can, you can use that as a reminder that all that we're doing here is trying to wake up, aspiring to wake up, aspiring to open the heart of compassion to establish helpful relationships with others, and then to live with integrity. The qualities of the awakened mind are the paramis, or the perfections, such as generosity, renunciation, understanding, resoluteness, energy, patience, truthfulness, balance of mind. These are the qualities that we're aspiring to develop in our life through practice and by taking refuge in the Buddha. Secondly, we take refuge in the Dharma. There are three meanings of the word Dharma that I want to uh, mention. And the first of these is the Dharma as the teachings of the Buddha. The second is the Dharma of every psychophysical experience we have. Every psychophysical experience we have is a Dharma. And the third is the Dharma as the truth of the way things are. So the first meaning of the Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we're acknowledging to some extent that we're taking refuge in, we have faith in, we want to learn how to rely on, or at least we're willing to listen to what the Buddha had to say. 
the teachings that the Buddha offered. You know, the Buddha said when he was walking through the forest one time with a group of monks and nuns, picked up a handful of leaves and said, which is more? The leaves in my hand or the leaves in the forest? And they said, well, there's obviously more leaves in the forest. And the Buddha said, so too is the knowledge of the Tathagata, the Buddha's mind. What the Buddha knows is like all the leaves in the forest. But what the Buddha has taught is like the leaves in his hand. But, he said, that's all you need to know in order to free your heart, your mind from suffering. The 40 volumes that we have of what the Buddha taught, the rules for monks and nuns, and the uh, analysis of the mind in the Buddhist uh, psychology of the Abhidhamma, is what we have to rely on of the teachings of the Buddha, the most, uh, let's say, the most clearly traceable teachings from the Buddha. I don't know about you, but when I first heard the Dharma through discourses like this at my first retreat, it was as if I was hearing for the first time what I already knew. But I'd never heard it before. I'd never read it before. But some, there was some level of I know that. I agree. It's not like I had faith in it or I wanted to believe it. It's just I knew that was the way it was. That's the value of the teachings of the Buddha. If they're expressed accurately in an idiom that you can relate to, they will speak and point directly to what you've lived and known your whole life. Because the Dharma is the way it is. And if someone is speaking about the way it is, it resonates. But not all of what the Buddha taught is easy to access or easy to agree with. Some of what we hear is obvious. But some of what we hear is a stretch or takes us into terrain that we've net, not yet seen for ourselves. And so it's here where our taking refuge in the Dharma supports us in practice. Not only does it confirm what we've already known, but when we hear the teachings from someone that we've heard the truth from before, we're, it's easier to suspend our doubt that what we have not yet confirmed is true. So when we hear the teachings of the Buddha that are beyond our experience, because we've believed and experienced what the Buddha has said up till now, it's easier to give an ear, to suspend our doubt, 
to hold it as a possibility while we continue practice. And in time, practice, if effective, if efficient, will confirm for us what we have uh, opened ourselves to hear and believe. But the Buddha said that the Dharma, his teachings, are not to be believed blindly, are not to be believed because he said them, not to be believed because others agree with him, but to be investigated, to look for yourself, to see whether these teachings are true or whether these teachings work for you. Because the Dharma is to be realized by each one of us for ourselves. No matter who agrees with the teachings of the Buddha, unless we have seen for ourselves, we won't know for sure. And it's only through practice in looking deeply at our own experience and coming to understand our own experience that we're going to know whether we agree, so to speak, with the Buddha or not. But as we practice and we receive some confirmation of the teachings of the Buddha, it's easier to trust additional teachings of the Buddha. So the second meaning of the word Dharma is that the Dharma is every experience we have. Every physical experience, mental experience, emotional experience is called a Dharma. And so when we take refuge in the Dharma, we're aspiring to find a way of taking refuge in every experience we have. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, familiar or novel, gross or subtle, whether we like it or not, we're aspiring to be able to have the relationship to every experience of one of ease, a sense of safety and security. That's what a refuge is. When you're in a refuge, you feel safe, you feel secure, you feel at ease. And yet there are many experiences that we have in life where we don't yet feel that. So in our taking refuge in the Dharma, we're acknowledging the possibility, not yet realized, of establishing a relationship of ease with all experience. That takes practice. But taking refuge in the Dharma in this way supports practice. So that when we get to the difficult and challenging physical, mental, emotional, psychic stuff in our practice, we can remember our refuge, our aspiration to find the understanding that will allow us to have a relationship of ease with this experience. 
the Buddha did. Those who practice the teachings do. And we can too, through practice. The third meaning of the word dharma, the first being the teachings of the Buddha, the second being the dharma of each moment's experience. And the third meaning of the word dharma is the way things are. The natural law of cause and effect that posits that everything that happens is due to causes and conditions. There's no mistakes. Things are happening the way they're supposed to happen. Even if we don't understand why or how it's happening. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's because of causes and conditions causes and conditions from far in the past impacting our lives in this moment. If we could understand deeply the way things are, the Dharma, we could rest at ease with all that life offers. And so when we aspire to take refuge in the Dharma, we're really looking for this understanding. We're, we're, we're dedicating ourselves in some ways to this, to finding this understanding, to realizing this understanding of how to be at ease with what feels like sometimes being um, punishment, uh, feels unjust, feels like it's a mistake whether it's happening to us or to others. And when we have this misunderstanding or these misunderstandings, we suffer. The Buddhist teachings and the Dharma and the way things are, or the realization of the way things are, frees us from that suffering. Even at the time of the Buddha, there were wars, there was famine, there was all kinds of injustice. There were people torturing and bothering and, and hurting each other all the time. And yet, the Buddha arrived at an understanding of the way things are that caused him not to suffer. When we aspire to the, take refuge in the Dharma, we aspire to that understanding. To really open to see how things are happening, the way they're happening, the causes and conditions that bring forth what's happening. And with that understanding, we stop struggling. When we really see deeply into the way things are, we stop struggling with it. We stop trying to make the world into our toy, the way we want it to be, and instead accept, acknowledge, this is the way it is and accommodate it in a way that is compassionate and wise so that we don't suffer and we don't cause others to suffer.
But this understanding comes from paying attention, just as we have been doing today. Paying attention to the moment-to-moment dharma of the mind, the body, the environment, because it's here, embedded in these experiences, that there's the right understanding and the wrong understanding. The wrong understanding leading to suffering and the right understanding leading to peace that's available to us. It's not somewhere else. It's not later. It's not in another place. It's not in another time. It's not in another book. It's in this moment's experience. And our practice of awareness gradually opens to the way things are. And after resisting for days, weeks, months, years, after resisting the way things are, hopefully we'll begin to accept, we'll begin to acknowledge, we'll begin to be able to accommodate and see this is the way it is. And with that understanding of the Dharma, through our moment-to-moment experience of the Dharmas, we come to the understanding and the realization that the Buddha taught the Dharma. This is the way it is. This is the way to be free of suffering. This is suffering. This is the way to the end of suffering. We know we're not there yet. We still suffer. We're impatient. We have frustration. We're disappointed. We have ambitions. We have, nevertheless, we can aspire and we can reaffirm our aspiration and we can practice our aspiration to find a refuge in the Dharma. And in time, we will. This understanding of finding refuge in the Dharma is expressed really succinctly by one of my favorite poets, Galway Cannell, in his poem, Prayer, when he says, whatever happens, whatever what is is, is what I want. Only that, but that. Whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. A real attitude, or this attitude of wanting only what is, expresses the wisdom and an ability to live at ease with whatever life offers. This is finding refuge in the Dharma. So we take refuge in the Buddha, this potential to awaken, the person that showed us the way. We take refuge in the Dharma, the teachings of that person, our momentary experience, and the natural law 
of cause and effect that we come to understand. And we take refuge in the Sangha. Now the Sangha refers to community. It refers to this community, this community of uh, Dharma practitioners, people who are practicing together. And it refers to the, the community of Dharma-interested folks that you uh, share your life with. It also refers to the community of ordained monks and nuns, the Sangha that has is the embodiment, really, of the teachings of the Buddha. And more precisely, or maybe in a more refined way, it refers to those beings who have practiced the teachings of the Buddha and realized, to some degree, the truth of what the Buddha said, having attained some stage of enlightenment, some degree of liberation, as pointed to by the Buddha. And maybe in its most refined uh, form, the Sangha refers to those beings since the time of the Buddha who have heard the teachings, practiced the teachings, and realized the teachings, thereby freeing their minds. And there have been such beings throughout history. When we take refuge in the Sangha, we can take refuge in having friends to practice with. We can take refuge in the worldwide Sangha that keeps the Dharma teachings available to us. We can take refuge in those who have realized for themselves, having been teachers and mentors to us or our teachers. And we can take refuge in those beings who have had the faith, the courage, the humility, developed the paramis, and have freed their minds from suffering. For myself, my awakening to taking refuge in the Sangha happened like this. In the meditation center where I was practicing in Burma, in the second week of December every year, they would have a festival. And I was practicing at a center called the Mahasi Meditation Center. Mahasi Sayadaw was a monk in the last century who was a very renowned scholar and uh, yogi who uh, established a meditation center in Rangoon for lay people like ourselves, didn't have to be an ordained monk or nun to practice there. And he uh, taught a technique that was very effective for many people to establish the concentration to realize very deep wisdom. And so every year in the second week of December, there would be a festival at the Mahasi Center of all the uh, teachers in the Mahasi tradition in Burma. And so there'd be about 400 elder monks who were the teachers. They would come from all over Burma and they would bring with them, or I should say, they were brought by a whole covey of supporters and 
students and hanger honors and attendance of one sort or another. And at the same time, there were a hundred or so senior nuns who were also uh, in the Mahasi tradition, teachers within the Mahasi tradition, they would come. And so at this meditation center during that week, there was just a whole host of uh, Dharma folks around. And the, 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 the energy of the place just kind of ratcheted up several degrees. And there were Dharma talks broadcast over loudspeakers from 5 in the morning till 10 at night. Of course, I didn't understand any of them, but nevertheless, the energy was still there. It felt pretty interesting. And it was just a general good feeling of the Dharma family in the uh, Mahasi tradition. Now, as I mentioned, when the gong would ring for breakfast, then we would get in line and go to breakfast. But during this time, during the festival, one of the monks who would help run the meditation center, he would step out into the walkway, going up the hill to the dining room, and he would say, 65 wasa. That means any monk who's been a monk for 65 years, having done three, uh, 65 three-month range retreats, any monk who's been a monk for 65 years, meaning they're at least 85 years old, could go to breakfast. And one elderly monk would step out into the path and start walking up the hill slowly. And then he'd say, 64 wasa. And then another monk, elderly, would come walking out of the shadows or some building somewhere with a cane or two and head up the hill after the first one. 63 wasa. And there might be another one. 62, 61, 60. And he would just work his way down the list because when monks gather, they always gather according to seniority. Those who've been monks the longest go first. And he would work his way down the line, down to 50 wasa. You know, only been a monk for 50 years. Or down to 40 or 30. You know, by the time they got down to 30 wasa, those monks are only 50 years old, and there'd be dozens stepping out into the path at one time and, and, and going up the hill. You get down to 10 wasa, and there'd be a few. Not many of the senior teachers are only monks for 10 years. And then in being inclusive, when they got down to one or two wasa, I could go. So I would step out <laughs> into the line and would join this long line of monks. And when I would get into this line, I'd look ahead and going up over the hill and around the corner into where the dining room was, was this long line of several hundred monks. And I had this thought, or I had this realization, this understanding that somewhere at the head of the line was the Buddha, a long ways away, a long time ago. But somewhere at the head of the line was the Buddha who realized the truth, freed his mind. And he turned to those around him and said, see if you can see it this way. If you can see it this way, free your mind. And there were those who did, heard those teachings, practiced, 
realized the truth. And they turned to those around them and said, see if you can see it this way. If you can see it this way, you can free your mind from suffering. And they did. And this teaching has been handed on that way for 2,500 years. Coming eventually to Mahasi Sayadaw himself in the early 40s, who taught Sayadaw Ubandita in the early 50s, who taught me and others in the uh, 70s and 80s. And at the time, it seemed like I was the last one in the line. But I'm not. Because I'm going to ask you, see if you can see things this way, the way of the Dharma. Because if you can, you can free your heart from suffering. And it's up to you to practice, to realize for yourself, so that you too can turn to those around you, share what you've understood, so that those future generations of beings not yet born who will want these teachings, who will want this practice, who will need it in order to free their hearts from suffering, in order that they too have this advantage that we have. It's up to us. It's our responsibility as the holders of the Dharma of this generation to hear, to practice, to realize, and to teach. And that's what we're doing here. Relying on and taking refuge in that long line of monks. And the nuns were going in their dining room in the same way. That goes all the way back to the time of the Buddha. We're not alone in this. We never have been and we never will be. But we each one has to do the work for ourselves. But we have a lot to rely on. We have a lot we can take refuge in. It is a great support. Taking refuge in the Buddha, taking refuge in the Dharma, taking refuge in the Sangha is not an insignificant practice. It can be a powerful support for encouraging you to endure the difficulties, the challenges, the frustrations, the pain, the confusion, that we meet every day. And especially in practice like this, when we're really looking closely, looking deeply into the conditioning of the mind that suffers, we need all the support we can get. And while the first days are the hardest days, there is an end to suffering. And this is the path. If we practice the refuges, if we seek the guidance of the Buddha, if we understand that we have this potential within us, and we practice to realize the Dharma, then we offer a great gift to the rest of the Sangha. An example of 
the possibility of freeing our heart, freeing our mind from suffering. I hope you can find a way to practice the refuges that support your awareness practice during this retreat. Stonehouse was an old Chinese monk who lived during the 1300s as a hermit on Red Curtain Mountain. Interestingly, in his poetry, he mentions uh, a lot of the uh, geological uh, uh, formations around his uh, monastery, his hermit, hermitage. And in fact, uh, a fellow from Seattle area uh, a few years ago went to China and found his monastery on Red Curtain Mountain from the 1300s. It's still there, and there's still monks there practicing. But Stonehouse wrote, you're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. If water drips long enough, even rocks wear through. It's not true thick skulls can't be pierced. People just imagine that their minds are hard. People just imagine that their minds are hard. You're bound to become a Buddha if you practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.